I assigned my value to this perception of accomplishment, this idea that I'm graduating with a job and I'm doing what I intended to do. I remember even like changing the narrative at some point and saying like, oh yes, I always was curious about sales. No, I wasn't, right? It turned out to be something that I really enjoyed. I felt like this need to quickly patch my failure so that my, I don't even know who, maybe like parents, maybe family, friends weren't seeing me as this like failed person because I didn't have a job anymore. When you look back on your career trajectory, what do you notice? Do you see an even trajectory in your career path or has your career taken some hard curves outside of the expected norms? And I'm curious what fueled your drive towards your education, your training and job choices. I know so many, myself included, who started out their professional journey by checking the boxes of the next steps, mainly because that is what we all thought we were, quote, supposed to do. And our sense of identity and worthiness can easily get unmoored when we fail to check a box on this burdened checklist. But it's moments like these that can often help us break free from the machine of proving, striving, and grinding, and actually connect to who we truly are and what we really want to contribute with our lives. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. What seems like a setback in our planned career path can sometimes lead us to experiences that we would never have pursued, opening us up to ideas and possibilities that we never would have imagined. Now, I'll not offer the worn and the bypassy platitude of when God closes a door, he opens a window. <laughs> yeah, nope. <laughs> Setbacks in our professional plans can be costly, painful, and downright scary. And some of the pain of the setbacks can take a toll on our confidence and well-being and our finances. I know so many of you have at least one story, if not more, about a setback or a closed door that moved you in a different direction, personally and or professionally. I went through those times too, and the hardest part about those setbacks came from sitting within the space of uncertainty and grief while taking time to reflect, recalibrate, and convalesce. I often hear from folks how this in-between time after a big fall feels like wasted time and figuring out the next steps for work and life and plans change, but that time feels indulgent. But I see it as precious, almost sacred, as we hop off the hamster wheels of shoulds to figure out who we are and what we really want to do. Sometimes this season involves doing what we need to do to pay the bills and take care of our basic needs while we figure out the next steps or work on building towards something new. This can be hard to do when our worth and identity is too enmeshed with our work. Now, I reached out to today's guest to talk about the female-led tech business she co-founded and bootstrapped, along with her commitment to mental well-being with her staff by cultivating an environment where everyone feels valued and heard and motivated to contribute their unique skills and perspectives. But her experiences prior to her founding her business really stood out to me 
And I suspect many of you will appreciate her career journey and how she moved through deep disappointment and disenchantment when a job she'd been working towards suddenly fell through. Martha Vitar is the CEO of Flowdesk, a visually stunning and user-friendly platform that helps creators sell online and design emails people love to get. Martha is known for her passions for people, design, and helping small business owners succeed. Now, in our conversation today, pay attention to what Martha realized about the values she assigned to the perception of having a job. And notice when she took some time to figure out, for the first time in her life, what she actually wanted for her life. And listen for her lens on emails and how she sees them as the great equalizer. Now, please welcome Martha Vitar to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Martha, welcome. Thank you. I love your voice. <laughs> I have this thing with voices and it's just so soothing. I feel like this will be a meditation. <laughs> so, so excited to be here. <laughs> you know, it's like maybe, maybe I need to do my podcast voice with my children more because I'm not sure if my podcast voice translates to my mom voice all the time. <laughs> so, I love it. We'll I love it. It's like this is a grounding voice. Yes, especially if they haven't done their chores. So, uh, well, I am thrilled. I was just mentioning to you before we started our conversation that you were one of the folks in the back of my mind when I launched this podcast three years ago that I was so excited to have on the show. And I want to start off backtracking before you started Flowdesk. You were preparing for a job as an analyst in a government agency. <laughs> and I, I want you to detail what you were doing to prepare for that job and then share how you were feeling in the moment that you found out you didn't get the job. Oh, that was hard. Um, I was, and I would say still um, a nerd. I've always been very into academics. So there was a lot of academic prep. Um, there was a lot of language prep. So I was taking, um, I learned French, uh, Italian, which is not hyper relevant at this point, but Arabic, never really mastered Arabic, but even just like a little bit of understanding what's going on. Um, and then um, following certain courses, uh, prepping, doing research, flying to places to have interviews and then waiting to see that yellow envelope in the mail. I did get the job. The problem is I did not get the security clearance and uh. they won't tell you why, but I did grow up in Mexico. And even though I, um, I have a U.S. citizenship and a Mexican citizenship, at that point in time, the advisor, the resident advisor told me that what he believed went wrong was that I had more connections in Mexico and in the Middle East. And maybe it was a loyalty question. I'm not sure, but I did feel that. Um, I never in my life got drunk. I never did drugs or anything. So I know it, it must have been something that was out of my control. But to answer your question, how I felt, I think up until that point, everything that I had wanted to accomplish, I was able to accomplish. I just knew that if I prep really well and I gave it my all, um, I could get it. So, and, and that was always very encouraged by my friends and my parents. And this was the first time that, it, in my mind, there was never an option that this plan would not work. I just, I thought 
this is for sure what is going to happen. And I had received such good feedback until then. So when that happened, to me, it really felt like the end of the world. Um, it just got dark, right? I was thinking, what is my value now to the world? Like, what am I mm. going to do? Because in my mind, all I wanted to do was just create value and make an impact, right? So then I was thinking, well, what am I good at if not these, right? Because I had set my eyes on that job <laughs> for so long, for so long, even before college. So the immediate... I think urgent action was I need a job, right? Because that was going to be my job and now I don't have it. So I remember looking at available interviews and I got one interview on the day of my graduation. Um, so I skipped graduation um, for a sales role in tech. And I remember sitting in that interview and saying, you know, I have no idea of anything related to sales. I just want to tell you that, but I can learn it. Um, and they said, okay, I like that answer. And you're hired literally like in that moment. So it was just a very odd experience. And in retrospect, that um, specific job was my entryway into tech and possibly the reason why we're here today with building Flowdesk. But, but yeah, in that moment, it really felt like every door was shut and I had no idea what I was going to do to be a valuable human being, which is obviously not the right way to think about it and super dark. But I think you're young and, and you, you're used to measuring success by these types of accomplishments. So it's easy to feel like it's the end of the world. Okay. So, so many good points here. I want to follow up. You, you could have mentioned you've been working towards this job and this role and this area of work for several years. Yes. Everything that you were, classes you were taking, probably internships, mentors, people that you were seeking out, everything was siloed to this is the path. And you even got the job, but you couldn't take the job because of unknown reasons. So you didn't even have all the reasons why you didn't get the security clearance. You had some hypotheses. And all of a sudden, this thing that you've been telling it, like, this is where I'm going and you've accomplished it. Check the box, check the box. I'm just, I'm just emphasizing this because I personally, I relate to this. <laughs> and I think a lot of us do that. We morph our worthiness and identity with what we do. It's almost, I think it's almost inevitable the way the system is with our education process and just the way work is. And then when we have a curveball and uh, it, it can, shake us. Because at that moment, there wasn't any skill to get for you, right? There wasn't any, there was nothing you could do. It was, you didn't get the security clearance and you had no control. And that moment where we feel out of control, that's where we really get to know ourselves and get in touch with those parts of who am I without this? And your immediate response was to look for another job. And I'm curious like, were you just like, I'm going to go interview at whatever job will take me? Was that the process? So yeah, you're shaking your head. Okay, so you just were inter going and you took that first job. And what I love is the answer you got was it, the opposite of what you had done as mastery is, I don't know this, but I can learn it. Got you hired. The opposite of what you'd spent several years doing. It's true. It's true. Yes, exactly. And and you're right. I assigned my value to not even having a job, but this perception of accomplishment, right? This idea that I'm graduating with a job and I'm doing what I like 
intended to do. I remember even like changing the narrative at some point and saying like, oh yes, I always was curious about sales. No, I wasn't, right? It turned out to be something that I really enjoyed. Um, but I just, I felt like this need to quickly patch like my failure so that my, I don't even know who, maybe like parents, maybe family, friends weren't seeing me as this like failed person because I didn't have a job anymore, right? So all I wanted to do mm. was show that I was still on track to do something meaningful in life, which I don't, thankfully, I don't think about it that way. And now as a mother, this is a conversation that I am planning to have uh, very openly with my daughter so that she's hopefully never um, assigning her worth to any accomplishment truly really. and it's a tricky vortex i mean my kids are now 13 and 15 and those are conversations we're having sometimes multiple times a day martha i just want to let you know what, whether it's about grades or sports accomplishments or whatever their activity in, in music or writing you name it it's it's about being it's not about being perfect or finishing it's about also the process but it's like the, the world does give that mixed message of celebrating folks that have these certain only certain kinds of achievements there is an award for you showed up every day and gave your best truly it is so true <laughs> right? and part of me is curious i mean there's been a little bit of space for you since that moment when you didn't get the security clearance and i also so i really appreciate too like your motivation to find a job was really an outward for facing I didn't want my family to see me as a failure. And even then, you you still got up, though. You still took action, even though the why was kind of external and, and vulnerable, right, to, you know, when our, when our worth and safety is externally put, then it's we really are vulnerable to the waves of people's opinions changing. But that that was enough to get you to take that step. And then, wow, the huge shift. So sometimes even our motivations can still be you know, transfer and we're growing and learning. But I'm curious what you would say today if you kind of could have a conversation, you know, with Martha who, you know, just found out you didn't get the security clearance and you're in that like moment of who am I? What are gonna people gonna say about me? What do I do? What would you say to her right now? Oh, I would say that it's truly not the end of the world. It's really, I mean, life goes on and it's such a small part of your entire life in perspective, if you look back, um, I would say there, I, I continued on that path for a long time. Um, but then there was a point where things changed. And after how, that first sales job in tech, I moved on to Oracle. I was doing sales for Oracle as well. And I was still on the, like, what is going to be the shiniest next accomplishment? And what is going to look the best? Still external focused. And I remember I got the dream job um, at Salesforce. It was the um, outside sales job based in San Francisco for the San Francisco territory. And everyone wanted that job and I got it. And I think it was the day before I was supposed to start that I realized exactly what you said, right? Like back to the why, my why was external. My why was everyone wanted this job and I'm proving something by being the person that got the job but I don't really want to do this. I just don't, there's something in me that feels like this is not the right path for me. And it was so strong, um, I think for the longest time, and maybe it's something that happens when you take a sales job, you get so many rejections from potential customers that 
you learn to almost like mute your body, mm. right? So for the longest time, I muted my body. But then I had such a strong like physical reaction to to starting this new job um, that I just kept like feeling like dizzy and and sick and unwell. And every time I thought about starting, instead of being really excited, I felt like my stomach would drop. And it's almost like my body was saying, okay, you're done ignoring me. I'm going to scream. And right. I called the recruiter and I said, I'm so sorry to do this, but I am not going to start. And then her first question was, well, did you take another job? Like what's happening? Can we um, solve this somehow? And I just was very honest. Like, I, I just don't, this is not what I want to do right now. And I don't know what I want to do. So I booked a trip to Hawaii by myself. I stayed on a boat because I was definitely on budget since I didn't have um, a job lined up. And, and it was the first time in my life, truly in my entire life, that I started thinking and feeling like, what do I actually mm. like want? And that is a shift, right? That it's amazing how we don't realize how much we're doing what we are told we're supposed to do or think we're supposed to do. And, and I think some of that just part of the developmental life cycle of growing up, honestly. So when you're in Hawaii on the boat, which sounds pretty awesome right now, but you're also like figuring out who am I, what I want to do. When you look back on that time, what what were some of the takeaways from that time? Um, honestly, I don't remember. I think there's always like you always fix history in a way that the narrative makes sense. Um, I I so don't true. remember what I was thinking at that moment, but I remember um, my actions afterwards. So when I got back, I was living in San Francisco. So when I got back from San uh, to San Francisco, and I started looking for jobs again. I was only talking to people that made me feel excited about. I was just a lot more connected to my body and um, jobs that made me feel excited, that felt like really aligned with my values, um, which was something that I grew up really strong into um, my values. And there's always been two. Um, making an impact, like making the world a better place and justice. <laughs> so when I was a child um, in kindergarten, I had this like hard lunchbox and I would go after people who bullied other people and they yelled at me, um, Martita the justice maker, Martita the justice maker, because I would not let anyone bully anyone else, whether they were my friends or not. I just hated the idea of someone picking on somebody else. So I am... Um, super short. I'm five foot tall. So I was imagining like this tiny, tiny baby essentially, and just like going after the mean people. So I think that's when a lot of these things that were always true to me just started kind of surfacing again, right? After so many years of kind of wanting to climb the corporate ladder, which just mutes a lot of that. Maybe I would say like feminine um, energy, I don't know how to explain it, but like that feeling kind of um, part of the body. Well, climbing a corporate ladder, you know, figuratively and literally means we have to mute part of us, parts of us to be who we're supposed to be to fit the mold of this collective expectation. And and that's that's been killing us slowly and quickly, you know, for decades now. Um this is what you're supposed to do. And your body just shut that down. I love that you started looking for jobs that you felt excited about, that you were in touch with that early on. That's huge because that's such an essential skill. 
Like, is that a body? Yes. Or is it an ambivalence or is it a heck? No. And, and I've been talking, I actually just talked to a client. I said, I want you to go sit with this person. They just looked thinking about merging his business. I said, I want you to go sit in a room and your body's going to know you've taught me that about you. And so you're going to know. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's worth the plane ticket. Go sit in a room and see what your body feels like. And I mean, obviously there's other metrics you're going to take into account, but I want, I want to know what comes up there because they've done a lot of prep work already. And so I love that that was informing it. And so what excited you during that time? What were some of the body like yeses and curiosities and where was the energy flowing during that interview time? So I love that method. Super, super behind that. Um, definitely. And um, I remember it was all no's. Everything just felt like more of the same until I mm. talked to Oz, the CEO of HoneyBook. And our interview, all of the other interviews were very much like a by the book, talk about, tell me about your resume, right? Um, focus on the job. And my conversation with Oz was all about growing up. And he grew up in Israel and I grew up in Mexico and my father is Lebanese. And it was like all of these amazing like geopolitical conversations. And I saw this tolerance and love for people and how committed he really was to building something for small business owners because he cared. Um, and then obviously I looked at the, like you said, like the metrics have to be there, right? So I looked at the business, I looked at the solution, at the software, the design was gorgeous, the team was super strong. So that was to me, hell yes. And it is truly, it's either a hell yes or it's a no, right? So yeah. every part of me was so excited. And then I, they asked me to do a demo of the software, just pretend you're selling it to someone. And as I wrapped the demo while we were in the call with like the whole company, because it was just like 10 people, um, they offered me the job and I was just so excited it just felt like such a real win like a, a body alignment win and even that experience marked how we make offers now at Flowdesk like I loved being surprised with hey like you did great we'd love to offer you the job so so we, we try to replicate that experience as well I don't know if they're still doing it I don't think they are um, maybe it's a conversation. I have this, I have this vision of them pinging each other. Like while you're doing it, like we have to have her, like, should we do the offer now? And yeah, you know, I can see them pinging. And, you know, and I, I just want to say too, there's a part of me wants to note that, you know, sometimes in life we can't do those full body hell yeses. And we have to kind of do what Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her book, Big Magic. And we, sometimes we just have to eat a shit sandwich. Sometimes we have to do life and, and there's reality and there's tough choices. And so I don't, I, I want to make sure this parts of me want to make sure not to uh, minimize or devalue those moments too, because life in a world that's that's broken and struggling. And if we've been muting who we are and not listening to that, then we're missing so much of what you experience in that moment. Because listen, when they're, you're around someone who's genuinely excited about what they're doing, I mean, our nervous systems, right, are contagious. And so, because I, I, there's some people, I'm like, I'll buy air from you. Like, wh where do you, where do I Venmo you? Sure. You know, and not in a grifty kind of way, but just because I've bought in and I'm like so excited to support you. And so that also from a mental well-being perspective is balm, 
right now, I mean, in a community and that helps build resilience and that can have a healing component too. And we're showing up in that kind of energy and in that space. So I, I thank you for sharing that. I'm really excited. I appreciate you. And I'm grateful that you identified that connection so early on. I want to spend a moment though, to talk about Flowdesk a bit, because what struck me when you all came on the market, and I know I wasn't the only one, because when I started hearing about, you know, Flowdesk um, from a lot of folks that I like and respect, I'm like, another email marketing platform? Really? When I started, I read about, you know, you and your co-founder, Rebecca, and I'm like, huh. So I I would love for you to walk me through what led you and your co-founders to start another email marketing platform in an already crowded and competitive space. The truth is you just said it, right? So I was in a position where I had savings and I could wait for that, hell yes, for that whole body alignment, I'm going to take this job. The reality is that most of the time we can't do that. Why? Because we live in this very flawed society where we need the job to make money because that's how we survive, right? And what what really happens more often than not is that we don't have the privilege to wait to work on something that we're really excited about. We just have to get whatever job we can get to get the money. And I think the problem or part of the problem is that it's really hard for someone still, like it's easier than before, but still very hard for someone to start a business doing something that they love and make profit out of it. There are so many obstacles, right? Some of them are emotional. Some of them are spiritual. Some of them are mental. Some of them are relationship with money, not feeling like you're enough. Some of them are knowledge, right? Um, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to make a website. I don't feel confident enough to sell, um, to talk to clients, to charge my worth. Um, It's just like you're climbing this mountain and you're always against the world and it's so hard. And on top of it, you're alone, right? Typically you're alone. And you don't want to tell others like how you're really feeling because back to, you know, like we're wired to not have those conversations and not show up vulnerably. So we can't fix the world, right? Like truly it's, it's impossible. But we saw an opportunity to level the playing field with email marketing. Why? Because mm. if you think about social media, there is an algorithm. You can pay for a better placement, right? If you think of, um, radio, TV, right? Any of the typical growth channels, like it's pay to play, right? If you're a big business, you're going to have the upper hand because you can pay for it, right? Email is still the one channel where you don't pay to play, right? Where it doesn't matter if you're Amazon or you're a mom and pop shop, you send an email to a subscriber and it takes the same hierarchy in the inbox, Right? They can't beat you just because they have more money. So if you're a small business owner, right, not only does this channel convert 40 times better, um, it really does level the playing field. So we saw that we, we knew, right, that our friends, our creative friends that were really crushing email marketing were more successful in building a profitable business. And Rebecca Trong and I were very passionate about seeing a world where we're not walking into a Starbucks and a McDonald's at every corner, right? But like the way that we saw the world when we grew up where there's like a taqueria and the bakery and everything's different and creative and craft. And 
And we were, first of all, very passionate. There was a big why. Um, on top of that, even though it was a very, and it still is a very saturated space, all of her friends in the industry, or most of her friends in the industry, even the ones that had been really successful in growing like an Instagram audience or Twitter, um, they were still trying to figure out email marketing. And I remember having some conversations um, with a few creatives and saying, hey, come over, let's have some coffee and I'll make some emails for you. And I remember creating some designs on HTML and then setting them up in MailChimp and saying, okay, every time that you want to send a new newsletter, just um, command F, find the subject, replace it, right? Uh, find this uh, headline, replace it. And it's super easy. And I'd send them home. And they would come back time and time again saying, hey, this is so complicated. Like, why can't I figure this out? And these are very smart people, right? Um, Rebecca, she's the best designer that I know. Um, so I started talking to her and I said, hey, I'm going to send you some people that need help with design. Can you help them, please? Like, just as a personal favor. And she said, I can't help them. I tried to create templates for MailChimp because MailChimp is really, truly like the, the winner in the space, right? And she said, this is my biggest support ticket. Every time that they try to implement it, something breaks. It just, it doesn't work like that. Like they're not well designed. And I said, well, when do you build it? And she said, I've been thinking about that for three years, but she's a creative genius, right? Like, um, I think that's where life put us together. I'm really good at executing. Um, so I thought, okay, well, if we work together, I can help you execute that vision and we can give it a try and see if it works. Obviously, we were not sure that we could add real value to an already competitive market. We just realized there's a gap, right? We have sort of an idea of how to solve it. We're not sure if this is a good idea or not. Let's talk to people. And that's where we put in a lot of research and a lot of customer calls and conversations to even find out if this is something that um, the world needed, right? And, and you're right. Every single person at the beginning said, why, why are you even trying to saturate the market even more? This is a terrible idea. But then every now and then we would talk to people who would almost cry and say, oh my gosh, this has been my biggest struggle for like ever. And here's everything that I have problems with. Here are all my pains. Um, how can you solve it? And we didn't know how to solve them, but we realized, okay, there is still a gap and the pains are real. And that means there is an opportunity to, to add some value. So what, what were you afraid of as you started this venture more formally? And what helped you manage those fears? Uh, everything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so first of all, we wanted to bootstrap. I think living in San Francisco, there's always that investor route, but we knew we were building this for small business owners who were not going to um, to have fundraising, right? We also didn't want to build this for some like investor shareholders. Like again, the why was very strong. We wanted to build these for the small business owner. Um, and, and we were willing to fail at it. So we invested our savings. I think we each put in like $19,000. So it's, it's not a lot, but I mean, at that stage in our lives, that was a like, that was everything I had. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So we were afraid of losing it all. We were, I remember when I quit my job at HoneyBook, um, Aw said, hey, we're probably going to enter a recession very soon. Are you sure you want to start something now and not have a reliable salary 
And that was scary. And I know that his intention was the best. Like he truly was like as a friend trying to protect me. So there's always that fear of if this fails, there's going to be potentially a money problem, right? Like sometime in the near future. Um, I think the biggest fear though was the the value and the impact. So it was, um, there are a lot of tools mm-hmm. out there. Can we really build something that is better, that people really like, that solves the problems that we're hearing? And we have never done this before. So are we even the right people to do this? But in that moment, we were so convinced that there was nothing else in the world that we'd rather be doing. We couldn't not do it, even if we failed, even if we lost it all, even if, you know, we had to go back to the beginning, right, and restart our careers. We just needed to do it. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict and change, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than how you were told. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. So, and I know you touched on this a little bit. And I, I want to hear how Flowdex, Flowdesk is different from conventional email marketing platforms, but not as much just in the technology. I'm sure you could geek out, but I, I'm also interested in your staff and the back end of how you run your business and run your team. The way that we run it differently, and I, I assume how some companies are run by just seeing Twitter comments and um, reviews, but I don't want to assume anything about how others run it, how we build our team. Um, the first, I would say, controversial or unpopular decision was let's go remote first. So even before COVID, we decided let's build a team of the best people, no matter where they are in the world, no matter what language they speak, right? Let's just find a way to like get the best people for the specific roles that we have and make it work. And that was super exciting. So right now I'm in Lisbon, Trong, our co-founder and CTO is in Vietnam. Rebecca is still in San Francisco. We have team members 
all over the world from Chile to Hungary to Spain to Danang. Um, it's really exciting. And from, I think maybe this is something that happens when you have a very diverse uh, founding team. But from day one, we also said, okay, so let's get all sorts of people in here and learn from each other, right? And bring in this like ego-free attitude of, I, we're in, we don't know what we're building. We've never done it before. I don't want to be right. I just want to do something that adds real value. So that was the first piece I'd say that was maybe unpopular. We really got a lot of eyebrows raised when we said we were remote and hiring people all over. And then the other one uh, that still comes up a lot is we really encourage everyone in the team to, to take initiative wherever they want and to lead and to say exactly what they think and how they feel. Um, and this is from like or dislike this initiative to adding some context of things that you've experienced to talking to your other team members about your salary, right? Like, in whatever channel you want to. And obviously, like we don't encourage, like there are ways to do it. Like there's a framework, right? So for example, if you disagree with someone and you criticize them publicly, they're going to feel very sad about it, right? So there's the right way to approach these conversations very respectfully in a way that's very constructive. But if we encourage these conversations to happen, then we also have the opportunity to create frameworks around them so that we also keep them very respectful and very constructive. So um, I'd say those are probably the two big ones that come up a lot or that when people start at Flowdesk, they say, okay, this is something that's really surprising to me. Okay, so I have some follow-ups. So I want to make sure I language as well. I'm not sure I believe that we can be necessarily ego-free in the sense of like we, when you care about something, when you believe in what you do, and you have, there's a confidence, right? In a healthy way even. And so you're bringing in a lot of talent. So there's going to be a lot of confidence and a lot of belief in what you know they can do, maybe how they think things are run. But what is it that you and your founders did that cultivated the space that there wasn't you didn't need to compete and, you know, power over other people and that you could, that it really was okay. Cause it's one thing to say, say whatever you want. It's all welcome. This is, you know, you can name it a safe space, but is it really a safe space? Like we talked about that in a previous episode recently. And so what is it that you intentionally did? So folks could see, wow, I could say, no, I actually disagree. And I don't think we should go down this path to, Hey, how come they're making this much and I'm making this much and we both have the same responsibility? Like that and that that is welcome. What did you and what are some of the practices that you put in place that actually help people build trust that that was something they could do? So the first is to talk about it. So it's one thing mm. to say, "Hey, we do these and all voices are welcome." And another one is to actually bring up the conversation time and time again create the right spaces and frameworks for people to say things, even anonymously, um, which is hard sometimes because they will give you really amazing gems of feedback that you may or may not be able to follow up with. But then also uh, choose the right frameworks for, for objectivity. So you're right. Ego, part of the human experience, 
And we have to acknowledge that, right? And we have to acknowledge that we have that tendency. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the frameworks that we can adopt that can help us stay objective so that if an idea is a good idea, it's because it is truly going to be solving a problem for a customer and not something that we just feel excited about or that I came up with the idea. So it must be uh, something fun talking about it and then exploring it a little bit deeper and, and checking in with your values, right? Is this something that, that feels good to us? Is this something, is this a way, is this a flow this way or is it not? Um, so yeah, it's hard. <laughs> How do team members respond when they are really excited about a recommendation and you are like, no, I mean, after, after you go back and forth, have questions, you interrogate it and decide, you know, we're actually not going to go in that direction, but thank you. How is that? How do folks manage uh, the disappointment or the rejection? Um, and is there any process after that? Or is that part of the culture? Like, okay, all right. And they're, they're not as tethered to it. Yeah. I'm just curious a little bit about how that works when someone gives their feedback, but their feedback doesn't necessarily lead to the change that they're hoping yeah. for. So. The feedback, I would say, is a very surface level of a very human need. So when someone says something, there mm. is something underneath. So coming into the conversation with that awareness and trying to understand what they're really trying to say is important. Then making sure that when we say, no, I don't like these, it's not a, hey, I don't personally like these, but there's more of a like there's a deeper conversation um, around it. We love debate and we love what other people would call confrontation um, because it's where we really pressure mm. test ideas, right? So for example, uh, coming up with an e-commerce solution, right? Like that created a lot of tension. Some people weren't a fan of it. Some people were a fan of it, right? So we welcome that discussion. We're like, okay, great. Let's poke holes, right? Like let's talk about all of the reasons why these could not work. And sometimes we are in agreement that something might not work and we still have to try it, even to just get the note. But sometimes when we can't get to an agreement, um, to me, this is like the juiciest conversations, right? Like there's something here. So let's explore further. Let's have more customer conversations. Let's, let's research, right? Let's send a survey. Let's get more data and find out like what's happening here, right? Because those are, to me, the moments where you're about to find something, right? Um, it, alignment is very important mm. as well, but these these kind of knots um, tell you that there's something there to uncover. Um, and then when these knots happen, it also typically indicates that there's some misalignment of some sort. And again, like there's a surface of a conversation, mm. but then there's also like the the what's underneath, right? Like where is that misalignment coming from? Sometimes it's fears of what's going to change. Sometimes it's fears of this is not what, what I thought we were going to do. Sometimes it's people just feeling behind. Um, sometimes it's I, we don't have the right resources. Like there's always, I would say, like at least five layers of why. And being aware of that core <laughs> is important. I know this sounds like a lot of woo-woo, but it's just we're human, right? Like we're showing up to these jobs and spending so much time on it. And that's just how we function. That's just how we experience it. And we can choose to see it or we can choose to pretend it's not there. Being human isn't woo-woo. <laughs> no, I mean, like you're, you're speaking my language here. And I mean, 
I, I feel like if we did a better job of being able to sit with and welcome, there's benefits of conflict and back and forth. So it's almost like the the culture, like you're looking to bring people on your team that want to rumble with their ideas and they come prepared for a back and forth that might take a while. And as leaders, you're like, who knows where this is? Some things might be like a pretty quick, eh, you know, because I know for me, like, probably it's like 90% of the things I think about once I say them out loud, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I need to just shut that down. <laughs> but you know, but then when I, I do follow through with some things we need to test and to try and to play around with, and that's normal. And I'm sensing that people's worthiness and their job security isn't on the line. In fact, it's part of what you're wanting and inviting. Holy cow, if we could do this in more spaces around the globe, imagine, imagine. So, so that's exciting. So this takes me back to hiring. And you know, what are the stakes for you as you develop the systems and the processes of creating these job descriptions and hiring for this global team, hiring for the hiring for culture, right? That's a buzzword. But you know, I, I love this. So how do you because the stakes seem high? So how do you develop those systems and processes? And what are you looking for in the job descriptions when you contract saying, hey, here's what we're here for? Here's what we need you for. How do you put that together more tangibly? Yeah. So the first thing is we don't just hire people who are comfortable with conflict. Because even though that is something that we want to do, if we did that, then we'd end up with a lot of the same people. For sure. Um, We also don't think of culture in the traditional like company culture way. Um, Culture is a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? Like I grew up in Mexico. Rebecca grew up in Silicon Valley, right? Like we, culture is what like are the addition, I would say, of like the traditions and background and experiences that each individual brings to the team. So we have a lot of cultures, right? Glowdesk is not a human. Glowdesk does not have a culture. Um, what we can align on is we have a lot of different cultures and they're all welcome. And we have core values that we would hire and fire for. So that's kind of like the approach, um, maybe like the undoing and then redoing again. Um, and then, yes, the stakes are high. Uh, the first thing uh, that we think about when we're hiring is the spectrum of types of personalities and people and experiences and cultures. So the very first piece is zoom out, right? If someone doesn't have a college degree, but they're the best person for the job, we give them the job, right? Like we want different. We want the best person for the job and they don't have to look like you and think like you and smell like you and everything, right? Um, I don't want to criticize the current system, but I do think that the problem is that you're not willing to take that risk and do the hard work in hiring. And that's why you end up saying, okay, well, these lists of colleges are approved because they probably did their job and, you know, like teaching very good things and these lists of prior companies are okay tired from like that just feels lazy to me so first we break that right and then like once we understand that we have bias that will always be there because that's just normal right then we start recognizing that bias and then when we feel like we really are in front of the right candidate we we have these agreement that if it's not a hell yeah it's not so everyone needs to be really excited about it and then bottom line it depends on the hiring manager to make that decision 
So if a hiring manager is very excited about someone, they can still veto everyone else and make that call because in the end of the day, that's like the person that they're going to be working with. It hasn't been very difficult because somehow every time that we have this really like big gap in we need to hire XYZ, like we end up finding the right person almost like right away. They come to Mm -hmm. us or someone reaches out or something happens, right? So I don't know if it's just being open to talking to everyone. I'm not sure. Um, But we're constantly having these conversations before we even open roles. I love it because if you, especially in the spaces that you're in, the pipeline of who you could hire if you go with the standard metrics of needing a certain type of training at a certain type of place or school or both, all of a sudden the pool just narrows. And then there's an immense amount of privilege because a lot of everyone has access to those things and you're missing out on an incredible body of talent and and skill set you know thought leadership you name it and so to me that this is pretty disruptive you mentioned earlier that folks kind of eye rolled or raised their eyebrows or both um at you when you decided to to start a global remote team how did you answer those objections then cuz i'm hearing everything you're saying i'm like this 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 is actually meeting, you know, the global, the world where, where we're at. And and really, you know, there is, it is, it's like Flowdesk in itself, the tech is leveling, leveling the playing field, but how you hire and lead your team is also doing the same thing. So I see it as a both and. Um, I'm wondering what are some of the pushback when, when folks like said, oh, you can't do it. What are some of the common things you still hear from the naysayers, even amidst your success? It doesn't happen anymore because of COVID, which is hilarious. So when we started uh, making these choices, um, it's when everything was run from the office and everything was FaceTime and everything was meetings. And we were living in Silicon Valley, right? So everyone was trying to fundraise. So people were looking at us weird, thinking, why aren't you trying to hire the best engineers from Google? And why aren't you trying to fundraise? And for some reason, we always have that clarity that that's just not what we want to build. It's not the way we want to build it. Um, So at the beginning, we got a lot of of raised eyebrows. And every time we talked about hiring a remote team, people assumed it was outsourcing. And it's not, right? Building a remote team is not having an outsourced team. It is entirely the opposite. It's not having a low cost center just because you don't want to hire the best talent. It is hiring the best talent regardless of their background, regardless of where they are, regardless of their native language, right? So that was the you know, the key. And then COVID happened and everyone had to shuffle and go remote for a good amount of time. And that's when a lot of people who, who did raise their eyebrows started emailing and saying, hey, we're having a lot of trouble building remote frameworks. Can you talk to me about how you did it? Like, I know you, this is working super well for you and it has been working really well for you. Can you tell me how you did it? And what's really hard is because we never made the transition, it's very difficult to say this is what makes a difference between being able to make it work and not. I think what worked is just having that mindset from the beginning. As you do all these things to cultivate global team, one of the things to have a a sustained 
team that's, you know, you retain your team is cultivating well-being and supporting agency and diverse needs. How do you how do you do that? What are some of the other kind of key metrics that you put in place to support well-being and agency? So we've tried to be very directed when it comes to well-being, um, even to the point of getting some meditation apps and benefits and um, telling people, hey, you should join these like team meditation. And none of that worked. I think what we found is that our team, at least, they don't want to be told what well-being means to them. And they don't want to be told how to do it. So it's hard. It takes a lot more effort. But what really has worked for us is a very individualized approach. So get to know your team members. Get to know like your peers. Get to know your manager. Get to know your direct reports. Um, and then have those individual conversations, right? Like if you're seeing that someone's uh, showing up a little more tense, right? Um, maybe don't ask what's going on because it's their right to share or not share it. And I think there's a really fine line between being nosy um, and pissing people off and being aware and being ready to open those conversations. Um, I think even just saying, hey, if you ever need anything, this is a safe space. Come and talk to me about it. Um, it's okay. But what I've also noticed is that that doesn't really always work because, for example, vacation time. Um, we say, hey, we have a limited vacation, right? Ask me how many people actually take vacation. Exactly. Yeah. So we yeah. have to get a little nosier and say, hey, you haven't taken vacation in an entire year. And that's probably not great for you. And you're crushing it. And if you took a couple of weeks, nothing would break. And if it broke, it would be okay. So should you be taking vacation right now? Right. And maybe it's uncomfortable and maybe it's awkward. Um, I think it's like, it's worth it. Right. It's just like having those uncomfortable conversations to, um, yeah, I don't know. It's probably an unpopular approach, but, um, we get nosy. Yeah. We don't ask, but we just like <laughs> create space again. You notice certain key things of how people are showing up. You notice lack of, of vacation. Do you have company shutdowns? Do you ever do like a global company shutdown? We do, shutdown? and we don't say when they are because um, it's just like fraudsters and spammers. Like they're waiting for these times when the company shuts down to, to do attacks. So we don't advertise them, but... Um, oh, and that, that way our team can actually like go gotcha. and not have to think about these things. But yes, we do. We have mandatory shutdowns. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Like things that you have to think about in this world. That is yeah. wild. That is wild. Um, so hearkening then back to kind of our, where how we started off talking about your original view of success, what you were driving for. How do you view success today and how is it different from what you were taught? Yeah. Ah, uh, I think the biggest difference is that I was, I grew up in a world where success was accomplishment and financial gain. And as long as you were progressing in terms of accomplishment and financial gain, you were successful. Um, fame, money, power, right? That's like success traditionally. Mm. Um, today, my personal definition of success is being in alignment with who I am, making decisions that feel good in my body, 
being present. And then the ultimate measure of success is adding real value. So whether that is as a parent at home um, in business, building a new feature, building, um, growing the company, um, creating a new company retreat for a team to get together. Um, it's really, it's that, it's value. You know, you just came off of your first in-person global retreat. And it sounds like, tell me, like, what was the success for you in that? Like, with all of the things that you've tried out, you you met people for the first time in real life since you started Flowdesk. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that experience and what were the successes around that for you, that the things that you were trying, that you were, you know, breaking the quote-unquote yeah. rules. Um, what are some of the successes you took away after that in-person meeting? Yeah, it was amazing. It was, oh, I just felt so good. To have everyone in person and feeling that excitement and momentum and the hugs and just having those water cooler conversations that normally don't happen and being able to really connect on a more personal level was just invaluable. Um, the the success I would say is we sent um, a post retreat survey asking a few questions and in the open feedback, uh, what kept coming up is that people feel connected to each other now mm. um, or more connected. Um, and I, to me, that's the ultimate success, right? Like if you build yep. that connection, like you you can't orchestrate that. It just, it either happens or it doesn't, right? And to know that whatever we built, right, resulted in that feeling of being more connected with the people that I'm working with every day, uh, it's the ultimate success. Um, there are a few things that we can and should improve. And there's a lot of feedback on, um, hey, I love this activity, but it went on for way too many hours. Or we have a mostly introverted team, um, and a lot of these activities are really exhausting. Um, so even sure. building in more breaks, um, some meals, uh, we really, really tried hard to be inclusive. Um, we're learning a lot about what even inclusivity means to us, and uh, we're yeah. really excited to plan the next retreat. Um, next year, I think we're going to start doing them once a year and just gathering all of these learnings. But, but that's success, right? It's it's knowing that people feel more connected and that they're speaking up about their experience like in the most authentic, transparent way. That is a success that you actually got authentic, helpful feedback so you can then adjust accordingly. That's wonderful. Martha, I've learned so much from you today and I it makes me love Flowdesk even more. I'll continue to be an evangelist for it. Um, and so really appreciate getting to know your leadership and a little bit more of your story. I'd love to wrap up just briefly with some fun, quick fire questions. What are you reading right now? The Baddies by Julia Donaldson. Uh, so I have Ooh. a six month old baby at home and she loves this book it's like these three monsters a troll a witch and a ghost and just all these cute books and she just gets really excited with these ones so i'm reading it um time and time again and i love it i enjoy it too what song are you playing on repeat the shakira one the new one Las mujeres ya no oh. i love it i could hear it all day long i don't know what it's called it's, a, it's got a weird name shakira never disappoints uh, what is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Ah, uh, okay. So I just watched Forrest Gump for the first time, and it is amazing. Oh my goodness, it's so good. I found out my son hasn't seen that yet. So there's a couple scenes in there I just want to check. I'm like, I want to make sure he's old enough for that, but it is a classic. Um, 
What is what is your mantra right now? <gasps> they change a lot, wrongly daily, but right this moment is stay present because Ooh. just time flies, things change, and it's just so hard to. I mean, we have like the phone and we have these noises and notifications and it's almost like a daily fight. So that's something that I need to remind myself of every day, <laughs> all the time. What's in an unpopular opinion that you hold? Sushi for breakfast. Oh, that'd be popular in my house. That's awesome. Okay, nice. Love it. <laughs> Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? My mom. Mm. I just, she somehow magically does it right every time. It's awesome. And when she does it, she's like totally cool with it too. Where can people find you and connect with you and Flowdesk? Yeah, our website is flowdesk.com. So F-L-O-D-E-S-K.com. Uh, we're on Instagram at Flowdesk and we're on Twitter at Flowdesk INC. Awesome. Martha, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real honor and... I have a feeling I'm going to be reaching out and having you come back on the show. I want to see how things are going. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Why don't you come over to Portugal and we can do our next conversation over coffee? Um, twist my arm. Uh, yeah. Now I'm going to be checking that out. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> let's, let's do, do it. it Martha. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> thank you so much. Now, before you go, I want to make sure you note these key takeaways from this unburdened leader conversation with Martha Vitar. Now, Martha's processes of discovering she assigned her value to not having a job and the power she gave the perception of accomplishment is something I suspect we can all relate to. And I also really think it's important to note how much she put into taking time to figure out what she really wanted out of life and work when her first job out of college didn't work out. And that time became a great foundation for how she leads her team at Flowdesk today. And because she held the kind of curiosity and built the ability to sit with ambiguity and discomfort, Martha fostered relationships and asked questions that led her and her co-founder to fill in the gaps of a need in the email space by simplifying the process to create beautiful emails for all sizes of businesses and even individuals while pushing back on the norms and building a thriving remote global team. So I'm curious, what have you learned from your career setbacks in your life? Did you take time to reflect and heal or did you rush on to the next thing? And what are you doing today that you may not be doing if it were not for some curveballs in your career path? We can do all the right things. Check the dang boxes, cross the T's, dot the I's. Sometimes things happen that force us to face where we put our worth and what we truly value and desire. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the unburdened leader. If you really appreciated this episode, I'd be honored if you would leave a review and rate this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you could find this episode, show notes, and free unburdened leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 